Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. I am joined today by another Establish the Run member. I seem to be interviewing everyone, I think, at Establish a Run at this point. But uh, today I have Mike Leone. Now, Mike, you are... You are the director of data analytics there. So are you like the main nerd in a somewhat actually a pretty nerdy company to start off with? So you're like king nerd over there. I'm king nerd for sure. I definitely get, you know, chirped at by Evan Silva, Adam Levitan, more of the football guys uh, as me being the quote unquote math guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it's it's good to have that element. Now, you, I follow what you guys do over there, obviously across the board. I also follow a lot with what you do, and I think I want to touch on a lot of the work. Not only do you do content related to larger tournaments uh, for for DFS, you do a lot of stuff there, but you also have done some stuff with Showdown and and the tournaments there. That's a little bit of a niche that I've focused on in my DFS analysis. We have the Thursday Thanksgiving three different contests there um all of them i think are 250k or bigger at at DraftKings. so there's some there's some big ones there and let's face it this time of year it's getting rough out in those seasonal uh fantasy streets you know there's there's not a lot to pick up trade deadlines may have passed teams that looked i'm sure they 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 graded as a's and league winners at the beginning of the season are looking a little rough uh, going down the stretch here. So I think this is a good point also for people to pivot over to to DFS. And the easiest entree into that, I think, may be these single-game contests as opposed to going and attacking an 11-game slate and trying to, to figure out there if you're not necessarily the most experienced player. So, so I want to talk to you about, about that sort of stuff, too. But first, I want to get into some more of the newsy stuff for the week. And I think the biggest news, the biggest surprise, depending upon how you viewed him going into the game was the success of Taysom Hill throwing the ball. Now, he graded higher, believe it or not, than Drew Brees' seasonal grade for us. He he graded very highly. He produced well. He threw the ball. I mean, he threw the ball down the field. It was caught. <laughs> it didn't look great. <laughs> but but he, he did throw the ball down the field more than someone like Drew Brees had done. Um, but it was against the Falcons defense, and I think it was done in a somewhat unconventional way. So what do you have any like big picture takeaways from Taysom? I guess that the the interesting question is, can we believe this going forward that this is a model that can work as long as Drew Brees is out? Because it could be a few weeks. Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, trying to treat this from a fantasy perspective to start. Like going into that game, I was really worried about Michael Thomas. Then all of a sudden he gets 50% target share and catches nine to twelve targets and you'd be concerned there that Taysom Hill is not the Drew Brees mold where Brees is basically feeding him slant after slant and really high completion percentage quarterback. So uh, I do think there's some mold of success just because the skill players around him. I do think he has at the end of the day, one of the sharper coaches in the NFL, even though he, he seems to maybe try to show that a little bit too much at times. I'm, don't think the passing success though is, you know, I'm not buying the passing success. And I know you had some metrics that you tweeted out in terms of how he did under pressure versus staple pocket and how he performed, you know, on play action versus non-play action. And it seemed like he was performing very well on some of the stuff that's, you're probably not as sticky moving forward. So I think from a real life perspective, I would expect him to take a step back, but I don't think it's going to be a disaster, you know, and I think they probably should be starting Jameis Winston, but I think they're going to be fine with Taysom. I think from a fantasy perspective, he's going to be 
rock solid because of the rushing ability that he has. And you saw two rushing touchdowns in the opener. I know they didn't run him much early on designed runs, but at the end of the day, he got there. And I expect that to be a facet of his game moving forward. Yeah, that's okay. So that's the thing. The design runs were a big thing that I, okay. So let me, let me just back up a second. So going into this game, a lot of fantasy Twitter seems to be in love with Jameis Winston, which is surprising because he was kind of <laughs> he's kind of been the same guy every year of his career. It's just like our opinion on him has changed and gone up or down depending upon uh, the circumstances, the defense, and, and how well he has done. So I I thought that they were going to start Taysom because even though Teddy Bridgewater played last year, I could see why if you have a team like the Saints, you say we have a good defense, we have a good running game. Let's grind out these games when Breeze isn't here. Let, Teddy, I want to put Teddy Bridgewater in there. That kind of makes sense. Putting Jameis in there, that's just introducing introducing chaos in, in, into the system. So I can see why they didn't go chaos and they went Taysom. Now, but I was really excited for Taysom because I thought, okay, they are on these neutral downs, whether it's first and 10, whether it's second and fewer than five or third and fewer than five. They're just going to run the hell out of this guy. And that's like extremely efficient, extremely good way to do it. Now, in the first half of that game, zero designed runs in the first half of, uh, of the game against the Falcons. And that just threw me for, for a loop. I mean, I think it was even on the first drive, it was third and one or third and two. He dropped back to pass. He stood around for about 10 seconds and then got sacked. And I'm like, what are these guys doing? Like, what, 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 what is the game plan here? Now, luckily, the Falcons couldn't do anything but get field goals in that first half. But that's my concern. Is Peyton going to continue to say, I think this guy can pass. I think this guy can do things. Not Drew Brees t- type of type of uh, passing because he's holding the ball longer. They're using more play action. They're going down the field a little bit more. But is he is he going to continue to troll us and say I'm going to make this guy into a quarterback or it, or could he come out against Denver and say you know what I'm going to run him in a way that my opinion is how he should how he should be used and. I know yards per carry isn't a great stat, but, you know, Alvin Kamara, three and a half yards per carry that game, Latavius Murray, 4.1. That's definitely surprising because you would expect with the Russian quarterback, the efficiency of the running backs to go up. So I really wouldn't be surprised if they started moving towards Taysom as the runner a little bit more. It seemed like, you know, maybe they just wanted to see what they had in him as far as a passer. And they were messing around a little bit in that game and moving forward, they might play it a little bit more optimally. I hope they do. I think it'd be exciting to see. I think it would be better for them uh, because, you know, I'm with you. I was very surprised not to see that early in the game. And again, I don't think the passing success, I don't think we're going to see Taysom Hill, you know, averaging 10 yards per attempt and completing 70% of his passes. I don't think that's the model moving forward. If you're leaning on that, I think you're, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, I mean, and, and not to mention the, the the okay. So let's, let's so we have Taysom, who I think is highly questionable. But one other thing I'll say about about this this thing of Taysom Hill has proved everybody wrong. I mean, it was hard to watch at times. He, I mean, I would, just, just some numbers here. So you mentioned this the stable and unstable stuff. So maybe I'll run I'll run through some of that. So he was. From a clean pocket, he was basically flat in EPA, and he was really good under pressure. Now, pressure is much less stable than, than a clean pocket is. Uh, they ran, like I said, a ton of play action, and he was good with play action. He was bad with, without having that play action. In other words, you can't use play action in downs where you know you're going you're gonna to pass most of the time, too, because it's not really a credible threat. And that was also the case. He was pretty poor on, on um, late downs, on third and fourth down. Um, where you're expecting some of that that passing. So all of those things were bad. Now, he had those long plays that he made. 
Uh, he held the ball a very long time, and I think that's going to be a problem. He had about three seconds in the pocket, whereas Drew Brees averaged about 2.3 seconds in the pocket. And it may not seem like a big difference, but t- that, that number for Taysom Hill would be the, the highest number. It's higher than any one seasonal average, other than Lamar Jackson. He's right there with, with Lamar Jackson. So he was. So this is not the, the, the Saints offense. And then, again, for the fantasy implications for other guys, Alvin, Alvin Kamara, what do we do with him now? Because... He was just feasting in, in PPR formats uh, based upon getting, you know, a 20% target share with Breeze, getting them the ball early and often, everything else here. Uh, you mentioned the, the rushing inefficiency or lack of efficiency there, which I think is troubling. But the more troubling thing, because that could revert, right? The more troubling thing for me, 4.5% uh, target share Zero targets for um, actually, well, like it's a nine percent target share for for Latavius Murray. So he was so he was used a little bit, but still, if you combine those together, it's not getting anywhere close to the usage that Kamara was going was getting going forward. So, do you think that was a, a like where do we settle on what the real Alvin Kamara playing with Taysom Hill is? It's obviously not the Drew Brees yeah. guy getting twenty percent target share, but it may not be the four percent target share guy either. What, what are you thinking about him going forward? I tend to underreact to these things sometimes and at times it can be a flaw in my game, you know, approaching it from a fantasy perspective, but when it's so extreme, you have to be a little bit worried. I mean, a one target game for Kamara by far his lowest of the season. I think his previous low was four uh, on the season. So a one target game definitely sticks out. And Ben Gratchy does a great job in his weekly dive into player volume and whatnot called stealing signals. He wrote the, routes run for Kamara were down too. So it wasn't just the targets, the routes run. So I'm concerned, but not panicking moving forward. I want to see another week first. You know, I think we both think the saints played that game differently than we expected. So I want to see week two. Okay. You kind of, you either succeeded, got away with it. However you want to put it week one, let, you know, let's see how they approach it week two. So I'm not totally panicking yet, but man, one target and the routes being down uh, is concerning because in terms of pure rush share, it's not like he dominates that from Latavius Murray. It's pretty close to an even split. So Kamara generally gets more of the goal line work, but I mean, he, he's not an elite fantasy back if he's not catching five to six balls a game. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, this, again, this is a little bit anecdotal because it's just, uh, you know, uh, uh, not, not a film grinder at all talking about myself watching the game there. I mean, there are at least half a dozen times where I would see uh, the backs coming out, and if he would just throw it to them early and just ignore going downfield, he could do that. Like he could just he could just toss it out to him. And I think that's what's different about the Saints' offense than a lot of offenses is when 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 Kamara's getting usage or even Latavius Murray is getting that receiving usage. It's not like Breeze is scanning the entire field and then checking it down to him. I mean, that happens sometimes, but I think sometimes he just looks at what, what they have, and he's just going to them immediately. And that doesn't seem to be Taysom's, uh, at least his progressions that he's going through when he's, when, he's, when he's out there. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you know, even taking it from Taysom, you mentioned how long he holds the ball. And Lamar Jackson is somewhat a comp in terms of how long he holds the ball. And some of these guys that hold the ball a bit longer, more mobile quarterbacks, we do see the target share for running backs anecdotally i think the data backs this up i haven't specifically looked yeah. at it but you look at guys like deshaun watson too you know even tyrod taylor i know was a concern for austin eckler coming into the year they seem to not target the running backs as frequently and it may be because 
they're not getting those early look targets uh, when they're kind of like a more of a priority read versus the check down late. Yeah. I think the, the, the scramble becomes a substitute for a, for a dump off. And then even more concerning is, yeah, as the defense starts to settle in, I think there's just less opportunity to, to get it, to get it to them. And another thing that I noticed is again, this is like, I'm trying to come up with, with film takes here. So it could be dangerous <laughs> is that on third down, uh, defenses don't want to play man coverage against the against Taysom Hill because then you have to have a spy. You know he's gonna he's gonna scramble, and Kamara was just better than almost anyone on some of those option routes where he would come out of the backfield. He'd have a linebacker matched up against them, and he would just toast them. So those opportunities may not be there. I, I don't think as much either for, for for Taysom just to stand back and just to hit Kamara with those easy third down targets. Like I said, he was bad in, in, in third down. So it, it'll be interesting now. Let's think about this from a DFS perspective a little bit here because he's on the main slate. It looks like he has the eighth highest salary. I'm looking at just at DraftKings here at 6,200. So with, without thinking about you know too much specifics of of the you know of the entire slate and everything else, but just generally what we're thinking about him now out of the dome at Denver, is he playable in? Is he playable in cash? I guess number one, maybe even even that. Or is and is he playable in tournaments, or are just too many people going to be potentially on him after having a good week last week? I think he's a pretty easy avoid in cash games. You, know, you get him out of the dome; it's still an expensive price tag. You have the pass catching concerns. It doesn't seem worth it to me on a pretty big main slate. I mean, we've got a lot of games. I know there's extra games Thursday, but we don't have any bye weeks this week because right. of that. So I think it's an avoid there in tournaments. It'll be really interesting to see where the ownership comes in. And this is where sometimes it's hard being the guy that does the projections because I'll project and bake in this risk about the targets coming down. But then my tournament brain is, well, if everyone's fearful of that based on a one game sample, maybe maybe this is the time to buy. And it ends up, I feel like I'm contradicting myself a little bit. So uh, it's really going to come down to ownership and looking at this slate, I wouldn't be surprised if the field panicked a little bit um, Dalvin Cook's really expensive, but you've got Derek Henry right there. You've got Josh Jacobs in a really good matchup against Atlanta, Nick Chubb in a great matchup. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if people just found other options, in which case I'd probably, you know, follow the mantra of, you know, be greedy when others are fearful, be fearful when others are greedy and look to Kamara if I can get him around 10% or so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always funny when you, <laughs> when you're playing in these tournaments, you put together, a lineup in your or or you're going to pick a particular particular player like like Kamara here and you're just like you know what uh when he throws up a complete dud you're like yeah that was probably going to happen but but it doesn't mean it was a bad <laughs> it does, it's like yeah that that was right yep he 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 didn't do anything um well, but I think to, that's not necessarily like, a bad play at the same time right yeah yeah and, and Michael Thomas last week's a good example of it where yeah, yeah. You're you're not. No one's playing him without Drew Brees, and then he gets a fifty percent target share, hits the bonus, and he does exactly what we want to see out of Michael Thomas: a lot of catches, gets the hundred yard bonus, and no one's playing him. And you were probably correct in baking in a lot of risk in your projections. You know, like we did at ETR, we definitely had Michael Thomas a lot lower than we would have with Brees at the helm. But if everyone's off of it, you kind of just want to use the uncertainty to your advantage. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. One last thing I want to mention about Taysom too, I think, which is being maybe downplayed a little bit is, you know, even with all the numbers, which I think 
cast doubt on his ability to continue this going forward. I also think that a lot of people are just looking at this one game and they're not really weighing enough what our prior was for Taysom Hill and his ability to pass. And that's pretty low. I mean, he, he, he didn't do it a lot in the NFL, but even going back to college, he was just a poor passer. He, 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 he rarely was able to put up numbers like that. So I still think we have to weigh that, that expectation of him not being an NFL, a real NFL passer against, against the numbers that we saw uh, on Sunday. All right. So the next guy I want to talk about, and he's the guy that I've, I flipped around a lot on this season. And that's, that's Kyler Murray, because going into the season, I didn't, I, I, I think I mentioned this when I was talking to, to Evan last week is that I was down on him because I didn't see him as being that great of a passer. And he just, that was kind of right because he kind of hasn't been that great of a passer, but his rushing is insane this year. He's having one of the most efficient seasons ever um, is running the ball, not only design runs, but then, but then scrambles. And my, my question is when I saw this shoulder injury halfway through the, the Seahawks game, I was wondering how is that offense going to operate? Cause I think a lot of it has been, Kyler, yeah, I mean, things are designed well. The runs may be designed well for Kyler, but a lot of it is Kyler just making things happen, and he's driving that offense with the occasional deep pass in there, but there hasn't been a lot of consistency moving the ball. So for Kyler, he's uh, he's the number one quarterback in fantasy, I assume, right, this year um, uh, so far? Or is it, yeah, or is Allen I'm pretty, pretty sure. I know projection-wise he has – I was kind of like you going into the year. I was a little bit skeptical that yeah. the – volume would be there to offset the fact that he hasn't been very efficient passing the ball even if you assumed a modest increase there but his rushing equity this year has been so absurd that you know we have him even ranked ahead of Mahomes uh which I mean you can maybe make a floor argument for Mahomes but as far as a mean expectation it's it's Kyler number one yeah yeah so he and then he's priced he has a you know he's priced at 8200 at the Patriots versus uh, Mahomes is next at Tampa, which I don't know if that's a hard matchup or not. We can't figure that out anymore. Um, <laughs> so what what are your thoughts on Kyler? Because I'm still concerned about the shoulder injury. Not he, He's very good at running and not getting touched. I think, I, I think he doesn't take a lot of hits, so you could convince yourself in that way. But is he going to want to run? Because we did see the first half of his rookie season. I don't know if it was getting used to the NFL, if it was – conservatism because because you know the players are a lot faster on defense or, or if it was just learning learning the, along the way he wasn't he he wasn't running much that that first half of his NFL season so I'm wondering if this shoulder injury is a problem would you be concerned about that from a perspective of just playing him this week yeah again you know I have a tendency to underreact to this stuff a little bit it's kind of hardwired into me I guess after starting in baseball and, and, you know, the sample sizes in baseball are so small, that's kind of how I broke into fantasy, but we, we do want to see the rush attempts. You know, he only ran the ball five times against Seattle in the game where he hurt his shoulder. That was tied for his lowest on the year. Um, Ultimately, like, I don't think I'm that concerned, but I think it's pretty easy, especially at quarterback in DFS to just not play him. I mean, we're loaded with options on this main slate and he's the most expensive one. You, you know, you mentioned Mahomes is right there with him, but you get Josh Allen and Herbert going against one another, um, Brady and Mahomes. And I think that game is interesting because both these teams are top five and pass rate over expectation in my model. So I think the pace and the attempts in that game are going to be there. And then I don't care as much about, you know, whether the 
it's a good or bad matchup as you put it, as far as the strength of the defense. So, and then you've even got some options uh, if you want to go a bit more value route. So even in tournaments, I'd say it's a pretty easy fade. I'm more likely to take a chance on a guy like Kamara at a position like running back where you can really separate from the field and put a dent in the field by taking a guy that's low owned. Whereas if I get Kyler Murray at, you know, 6% when he should be 12%, you know, at a onesie position where the ownerships get spread out, it's not this massive leverage that I'm receiving because he's not under owned by that much. And even if he puts up 35, there's another quarterback on the slate. That's probably going to be within striking distance of him. So I'm less likely to take the risk in a situation like Kyler, where I don't think the potential reward offsets the possibility that the shoulder injury is an issue. And that's coming from someone who's, you know, not even that concerned about it. Um, but it just seems unnecessary risk to take on. Yeah. I mean that maybe that's, maybe that's part of the discussion. Cause I don't, I don't have my ear as close to the DFS streets as, as you do to know whether or not anyone is talking about this other than me, <laughs> shoulder thing. So maybe yeah. nobody cares. And if you're, uh, so then you're really not getting any equity with it. Yeah. I think p- people care a little bit, but ultimately, I mean, if you, you look at his ceiling and if projection systems too, aren't taken into account, you know, a lot of the markets driven by, uh, you know, what, what like the average projections are across the market nowadays, a lot of people are subscribed to projections, whether it's ETR, PFF or whatever. And it's hard to figure out how to bake that risk in projection wise. And I think as a result, you're not going to see a huge drop off in ownership. You know, it's not like you're getting Kyler Murray at 1%. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I'll, I'll maybe I'll stake a claim on the Kyler Murray uh, disappointment uh, <laughs> if nobody else is, is on there. And then you, I'll just I'll just ignore it and say I don't know what I'm talking about when it when it goes wrong. All right, so the last – actually, wait, I got a couple guys I want to talk about. So I, this is like – I've actually done a round trip on Deshaun Watson probably within this week where I was pretty positive on him because of the fact that he's been playing a lot better. He's not been taking sacks. He's had this, he's had a, like, he had a really tough schedule to start the season. He wasn't running the ball uh, much. I think he only has 10 design runs this entire season. And then he had this really great stretch where they played the Jaguars twice. They played the Titans. Uh, they played the Patriots, who I, another defense I can't figure out if they're, if they're awful or if they're, or if they're good. They certainly were not pressuring him much. He was not sacked in that game. Uh, what, what's your fantasy take on Deshaun Watson going forward because from a quote-unquote real football perspective people are starting we're getting this discussion of whether or not he's the second best quarterback in football they can't do anything running the ball so they're relying on him a lot um I guess my concerns are twofold number one he's had this really easy stretch of schedule so is is that part of it are we are we worried that when when the games start to get a little bit more difficult I mean maybe that's that's not necessarily um, this this week, but when the game's going to be difficult, are we concerned about that? Number two, like I said, he's not running the ball. There's, there's, the design runs are, are basically nil th- this year. So is that, that of course, is a, maybe a little bit of a fantasy concern. So how are you feeling about Deshaun Watson right now? I'm pretty optimistic on Watson. Coming into the year, he was someone that was very difficult for me to project because you know, we tried to do sort of this combination of the quarterback's efficiency is based on their talent level, but also the talent level of the receivers. Um, and that has a big impact in it. And I felt like efficiency wise, we were overly optimistic on Watson because you have these guys like Will Fuller, Brandon Cooks, who on a per target basis are pretty efficient. And I was trying to 
true up in my mind that with the fact that he loses DeAndre Hopkins, one of the best receivers in the game, but necessarily wasn't hugely efficient, but he was, you know, you, you think he helps put the team in good positions. He's earning kind of targets in, in tougher situations and allows them to move the ball. So I was a little bit concerned. And now we see Deshaun Watson has a career high in adjusted yards per attempt at 9.0 and, you know, just straight yards per attempt, eight and a half. It's the highest. So I've been somewhat amazed he's been able to do that on a team that hasn't been very good. And then what gives me even more optimism from a fantasy perspective, uh, the team's pass rate over expectation, the first four weeks with Bill O'Brien, they came in under expectation two out of the four games since O'Brien's been gone. They've been one of the most pass happy teams in the league. Uh, from week five on. They only had one week where they were even close to right around pass rate over expectation. And that was against Cleveland in the game with a lot of wind and there were weather concerns. So I think the drop back numbers are going to be there enough that it's going to you know, take him to the next level from being this guy in fantasy who was really reliable, but maybe didn't have this ceiling that matches some of the other elite guys. And I do think he probably still comes in a little bit short on ceiling relative to Allen Mahomes, Kyler, because of the rushing stuff you noted, but I, I feel like he's pretty locked in right around number five or so uh, in fantasy. Yeah, I mean, they are, according to the EPA metrics that I compile, whether it's success rate, uh, running the ball and design runs, or it's a success rate defined as positive EPA or um, EPA per play on design runs dead last. In, in both categories. So it seems like rational coaching may be coming into play there, which we which we like to see. Um, Surprising, right? Though? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like Cornell, yeah. I mean, oldest coach in the NFL. I, I'm surprised. We saw him aggressive in that Titans game too when he went for the, you know, the two-point conversion at the end of the game. So somewhat surprising. You know, it's interesting. Okay, this is, this is totally not backed by any sort of uh, analysis. But I remember following Greg Williams and what he did when he was interim head coach with the Browns. Sometimes I like these interim guys because they know realistically, they have no chance of, of becoming the head coach uh, next season, no matter, no matter how, how well the team plays. Maybe I'm wrong about Romeo Cornell. That that's my feeling. That's my thought. That's my, 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 my assumption. Uh, I was definitely the assumption with Greg Williams. Um, so he was going four and fourth down a lot. He was playing aggressively. Cause it's like, why not? You know, it, 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 you're not, you're, you're not so tense because it's not like one long interview the entire season. So I think that that probably helps um, with Cornell. And plus their record is so bad that it's like who yeah. you're not really no one's going to be like, oh, if you would have run the ball more then we would have had a chance to make the playoffs because the playoffs are pretty much off the table at this point anyway. OK, so Deshaun is part of this Thanksgiving Day slate. So why don't we transition? We'll we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of the showdown stuff here. He is in the early game um, against Detroit. Now, there are some, there's some injury stuff here. I mean, but it, when we compare it to the big contest, which is the, the, the night contest, uh, the night game of the Ravens and the Steelers, which might not even happen. Um, even the injury concerns here are probably, it's probably a little bit less opaque than it is when it is for that game. But we have Kenny Galladay looks like he's looks like he's out. I guess he the, the most recent thing. Danny Amendola's out. Deshaun Watson, like I said, he's playing. Not only is he playing, but he's pretty well hyped. Uh, the Lions are coming off of a pathetic uh, effort offensively. 
Um, you don't get, I don't know, if, I, I think, were they not even in the red zone? Something like that. It was, it was really bad. It was really oh, bad was last brutal. week, right? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was I mean, one of the most brutal games of the year. Yeah, I shut out against the Panthers. Uh, that's, that's, not a, that's not for a good thing. Yeah, so this seems to be a good, okay, so it's, it's, a, it's a good, I, I, without having to get into exactly like, oh, you should play X player, you should play Y player. I think this is an interesting way to think about a showdown contest because it is extremes, right? It's, it's kind of like a team that's, while their record isn't great for the Houston Texans, they, with Deshaun Watson, they are seen as being on the rise, um, they don't have any running game, which is weird, despite the fact that they have this very concentrated running game. No one has been a really a great option there um, against a Detroit Lions team where you're going to have you're going to have pass catchers who are who are going to who are going to see the ball at pretty, pretty low prices because of Gall- Galladay and and Amendola are out. But everyone's pretty sour on them. So how well, maybe just a big picture, like when you're thinking about a, a, a showdown slate, a, a game like this. How how do you what's the first thing you're thinking about when you're when you're thinking about how I'm, how I'm going to approach this slate? I it's it's a completely different process for me if I'm talking single entering showdown slate versus mm-hmm. I'm making mass multi entry in 150 teams in you know the big large field tournament. So if I'm doing a large field tournament, I have more of a mechanical process where I'm kind of simulating the likelihood of different lineups being the optimal lineup. And I'm playing it very math-based. You know, Cody Main for ETR does a great job with ownership projections on each of the showdown slates. So what I'm cognizant of is I want to reflect correlation in the lineups that I'm figuring out, but I also want to make sure that they're not going to be duped too much. And a quick way to kind of estimate how often a lineup's going to be duped, you know, you simply multiply the ownerships of all the players times the number of entries in the tournament so um you know if there's 150,000 people in the tournament you multiply whatever that uh ownership the sum product of the ownership times to the number and then i try to not have very many duplicated lineups like i'm very aware of that i think the field's getting sharper and a bit more efficient in these large field showdown slates where some of the edges you might have had in the past by being really smart with your correlation or being smart with your roster construction as far as you know, last year I played a lot of onslaught. So five players from one team and one player from another team. And I felt like that was really underrepresented by the field. And it doesn't seem like it's as much the case this year. And when you start to lose some of those edges, you know, really the key to showdown on things to be unique. And I know you have done a lot of research looking at, you know, past slates and kind of how they compare. And I'm curious what you think here, but when I'm simulating lineups, I quite often will have slates where there's not a single lineup that's greater than, you know, uh, 1% to be the optimal lineup or even half a percent. I'm trying to, so yeah, I mean, or even less than that, like even half a percent chance there's not a single lineup because they've been pricing these showdown slates really well. And when you see, that number it's kind of jarring and makes you realize okay if no single lineup is really that probable to win i want to make sure that i'm unique enough that when i do win i'm taking home a really large share of the prize so that's my overall thought process when i'm approaching you know a large field tournament yeah i mean i guess it'd be so there's a lot of these larger uh game theory 
type of or profit maximization without even thinking about who the players are. And these are the things that you're talking about here, like ownership, not yes. wanting to be du- duplicate or not. How much is mm, how much does okay when you're when you're looking at the at the play at the players? So let's look, let's think about from a player mm-hmm. level. If you're looking at the players, you're saying so-and-so is a value or they may have this upside or there may be X player who is a, you know, he's active, who hasn't been active before and people don't even know it exists, something something like yeah. that. So in a way, that's a value, right? In a way, that's a value play because you're it's like ownership versus what you're, what you're expecting. So those player-level considerations, how much does that come into it at all beyond – using that to try to figure out how other people are going to view them and own them in the slate. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, thinking it more from a player perspective, one, I want to get a good idea of how tightly priced or not tightly priced the slate is, you Mm -hmm. know, and some of this comes into play with injury stuff. You look at this Houston Detroit slate, you've got Will Fuller at $11,200, Deshaun Watson, $13,200. Those are pretty high prices for a player. So this is probably even with the injury stuff going to be, uh, you know, a decently tightly priced slate. And when you get those tighter priced slates, I am more cognizant of who are these guys that are just going to see the field, right? That might be $200 right. because they can sometimes get into the optimal lineup with a catch or a couple of catches. You know, they don't need to hit this massive upside. And I think. Now, one situation where that happens, which I don't think is quite this game um, because there is a teardrop even after Watson and Fuller, but when you get chief slate sometimes, you know, where you can have what you can have Mahomes, Kelsey, Tyreek Hill go off all at really expensive prices too. Sometimes the optimal lineup ends up being four or five really expensive players. And as a result, you need a captain that, doesn't even end up scoring a ton, which seems counterintuitive. So I really want to get a good handle on how tightly priced this slate is. And then the range of outcomes on players is really important. You know, one spot where I think the field's gotten better at in large field tournaments, but maybe not as much in smaller field, single entry type stuff is quarterback captain ownership. And quite often the quarterbacks are the highest projected players on the slate but that doesn't reflect their probability of being the captain because their range of outcomes is a little bit flatter. And because the distribution of targets for the pass catchers, you know, it's not going to be uniform. If we project two guys at 25%, it's very unlikely in the game that they're exactly 25%. One guy is going to be higher than that. And that player who's higher than that as a pass catcher has this really high ceiling and a decent chance of being the captain choice. If, the quarterback has a good game, not to mention the quarterback's generally more expensive than the pass catcher to start with. So I think, you know, understanding the range of outcomes is really important. And I think quarterback exemplifies that and is often a bit over-owned and pass catchers can be under-owned in the captain spot. Yeah, no, that, that, okay. That reminds me of these broader trends that I've found when I've just been comparing the field versus what was the actual winning lineups or top 0.1% lineups or mm-hmm. however you want to however you want to measure what a optimal or optimal adjacent lineup is for for a particular slate now this so I did work back when I was at Roto Grinders looking at some of the first showdown stuff and then I have 
contests that I collected from last year that I looked at before this year. And some of these trends held true. So number one, what you mentioned, but maybe you could tell me if you've been looking at more what's happening this year, because that's something I haven't been doing enough. Um, number one, you, like you mentioned, um, quarterback probably overowned as as a captain versus uh, wide receivers in particular, although that's kind of faded a bit. Um, so is, 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 do you think that trend is correcting itself this year? I think it's correcting itself, but it's not all the way there. I'm trying to pull up too. And as I mentioned, I think in single entry, it's different where people tend to play it a little bit safer. So I was in, you know, a 200 man field for this latest Rams Buccaneers showdown slate, for example, and Tom Brady in the captain spot was like 17%, which is pretty high for an immobile quarterback. And that's the other thing, you know, Thanksgiving, we have, guys like Stafford who aren't going to run and you have guys like Lamar Jackson who are going to run, which does change the outcome because if you can get there rushing, you know, not only does it increase your ceiling, but it means a pass catcher isn't necessarily benefiting from your success, but uh, you know, you have, you see in these smaller field tournaments, similar to a main slate, where if you play smaller field, when people put in their quote unquote cash game lineups into a tournament lineup, you see the ownerships in flight. So, you know, the receivers, for example, in that slate, I had Robert Woods at 4% in captain, you know, the true probabilities, you know, Woods is probably a little bit higher than that. And Brady's probably a little bit lower than 17%. So I think in the smaller field tournaments, that advantage still exists in the large field. It's not as present as it was in the past, but it's still probably there. Okay. So, so, so that was one thing. Uh, when it came to the flex spots there, there did seem to be advantage of rostering both quarterbacks that, that versus some, some players may have been have just been going with one or another in a directional type of bet where you, you can benefit from having both quarterbacks there. Do you have any idea if that's, if that's still a thing? Yeah, I think, the dynamic there is difficult to get a handle on because the field plays two quarterbacks. I think they're playing two quarterbacks more often and those lineups tend to be duplicated a little bit more. So it's this trade-off of that's more likely to be optimal in terms of odds of having the best lineup on the slate, but it's also more likely to be duplicated. And your goal is to not chop with you know, a hundred, 200 people, you kind of want to split the prize with just a couple other people. So, you know, showdown has turned into, it's really fun, but there's a lot of layers to it. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And then, um, from the, another kind of macro thing of how much salary you want to, you want to allocate. I mean, I think it's, it's fairly obvious, at least from the old numbers that you didn't want to necessarily use all of it. Now, where is there, is there a sweet spot or, do you feel like any unique uh, lineup with upside, whether it's a few hundred off of the the 50K or it's 5,000 off of the 50K are all viable choices if you feel like the ownership can be low enough on a lineup that, that, that gets pretty close to that 50K? Yeah, I'm mostly concerned about, you know, how, how often do I think this lineup's duplicated? And again... I, mean, I don't want to get too mathy with it, but I, I multiply the ownerships kind of times the field size to get an idea right. in the really large field tournaments. And as a result, you can definitely find lineups that are right at 50 K or just under that aren't going to be owned. If you have uh, some, sometimes it's, it's just one really unique player, quite frankly, you know, if you find someone that's a couple percent owned, you know, just immediately, almost no matter what you do in the rest of your lineup, 
the odds of it being duplicated have come down exponentially. Um, but what I'll do is kind of just arbitrarily say, okay, if I'm leaving more than $300, I'll sort of cut the expected duplicates in half. So I can play some chalkier players. Uh, it, it's less likely to be duplicated. And then if I'm leaving $1,000 or more, you know, I cut it in half again, and I'm really starting to not worry as much about dupes. So I'll play anywhere in the salary spectrum. Um, as far as the chalkiness of the players that are in my lineup, though, if I'm leaving a lot more cap, I'm more willing to have a lineup that looks quote unquote chalkier is filled with chalkier players than I am. If it's going to be at, you know, 49, eight to 50 K. And thinking about captain and the flex spots is, and this is something that I haven't, I haven't looked into, but it'd be interesting to your perspective on this when it comes to, Okay, so so like we always talk about, you know, you want to have this upside. You mentioned you could use a captain who's very lowly owned and maybe they don't even perform that well and you could still have have an optimal lineup. But is is there ever a consideration versus captain versus flex of saying that well, if you have one of these these guys who maybe doesn't quite have as much upside but will be extremely lowly owned, does that bucket of of the of the captain spot I would think it'd be less attractive in a way because maybe you're not getting that super high end outcome that you need to trump everyone else. But what you mentioned earlier that that might not be the case. So like I would think of just sliding that into a, into a flex spot instead. Yeah, it really comes down to how tightly priced the slate is. And if you can see a slate where if, if you think it's a shootout game, for example, it might be counterintuitive to play a captain with not as much ceiling. But if the optimal lineup has four players in it that are, you know, averaging 11 K in salary. You, you might not have a choice, but to have a really cheap captain, because that's the only type of lineup that allows you to play those four players. So yeah. that that's more of a unique situation in general, though, you, you do want to be cognizant of your ceiling and, you know, you look at kickers, for example, versus cheap pass catchers. Like I'd much rather have, a more volatile, cheaper pass catcher in my captain. If I am doing a cheap captain than a kicker, because you know, the kind of the tail end outcomes, the kickers ceilings generally aren't that high. They're more of a flatter distribution. Whereas a pass catcher, even if a guy has not seen a lot of targets, I mean, one play you, you break one long touchdown and you can kind of get there in a pretty meaningful way. And kickers, you know, we rarely see in captain. And I think that's because of their distribution. So uh, you, you want to, absolutely factor in the ceiling of the players. And uh, my note about taking a low owned cheap captain is more in regards to a a unique, really tightly priced slate. But as you get into the slates that aren't priced as tight, I quite often you'll like to find if I, I, in my single entry stuff, I'm I'm quite often playing pass catchers there, which we kind of already noted, uh, especially um, and again, this Tampa Bay Rams slate was another one where I think you, the way it turned out, you don't want to be results oriented, but you do see where you can pick up on the field where there's just small differences in projections. So Cooper Cup versus Robert Woods, for example, Cup and smaller field stuff was like six times the you're like four to five times the captain ownership of Robert Woods, and he's the better play. But you've got kind of a one A one B situation there. Um, so those are situations you want to take advantage of. And then if you want to get really crazy, you can start to think about uh, lineups that might not seem correlated, but make sense. I don't know if you want to dive into those or not. But Yeah, I mean, that that, that is an interesting factor. I mean, yeah, I remember looking at, I liked Woods in that 
not I mean not so much because of Cup, but more because of this Josh Reynolds thing. Like everyone thought Josh Reynolds was yeah. was was an under ascension. So that made me think that Woods was going to be undervalued. Um but be, before I get to the 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 correlations in the lineup, but what one other thing that I've seen a lot this year where it may not be profitable from a uniqueness sort of standpoint, but I've noticed that quarterbacks in a type of match, like Goff in that matchup, or Kirk Cousins in a lot of matchups where he may be um, the underdog in a type of matchup, where these guys that just aren't exciting, basically, and they they aren't favorites, or sometimes they even are favorites, slight favorites, and they just aren't exciting. Those guys seem to be, like, the ownership differential between quarterbacks in a matchup, I feel like, is just totally out of whack sometimes, especially in the mm-hmm. captain spot, of people really being on one side versus another when... It's a game where one guy doesn't have a, a really distinct rushing advantage, and there isn't really a, a, a very high spread or something like that on there. Have you ever noticed that as far as the ownerships bouncing around being more reactive than maybe they should be? Yeah, and again, you know, this stuff always gets more pronounced in smaller field stuff. But the two hundred yeah. man field that I played the other night, to exactly to your point, Brady was eighty five percent owned in flex, seventeen percent owned in captain. Goff was 60% owned in flex. That's a huge drop off. And he was 3% owned in captain. And that that's like your rare captain quarterback. That's actually not over owned. Uh, so yeah. what, and I mentioned earlier how last year I played a lot of onslaughts, five, one type lineups. And usually those were slanted towards the favorite, you know, cause my simulations saw that as more likely, which makes all the sense in the world, but the field has really, adjusted to that and they're playing the heavy you know the favorite the team with the higher team total they're playing that team 5-1 but sometimes it's a four-point spread you know it's not this massive spread it's not like the other team can't win the game or win the game convincingly and it's the exact same argument as your quarterback of playing the quarterback that maybe projects a little bit less we don't see that many 5-1 type constructions with the underdog team you know those are some of the teams we've seen that have had the most leverage this year where it's definitely riskier, but those lineups also usually correlate a little bit more. So it's a little bit easier to figure out who you should play in those lineups. Um, as a result, if you, you know, in my simulation approach, those lineups end up popping as repeating more often than kind of like three threes or four twos, just because the combinations are a little bit clear. So I think that does make sense of playing, you know, the quote unquote inferior quarterback a little bit and even extending that to playing the inferior stack or onslaught a little bit more than the field is going to. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it might be just anecdotal, but I feel like these showdown ownerships are just a lot more reactive to whatever the, um, whatever the the current week is, but I'm not sure if that's true. No, They they definitely feel more reactive to like game logs and stuff too. And recent performance and a main, a main slate. And I think, I don't know if it has to do with people consuming content or using projections a little bit more for a main slate, but we've almost seen people on the main slate be able to phase out recent game logs to the point where those guys that used to be over-owned are almost under-owned now where it's like, well, maybe there's more there than we're seeing and we might as well take a chance because they've been playing well and the field's not playing them anyways, where showdown seems a bit more old school. Inter- and then the Cup Woods one and Reynolds one is a good example yeah. of that where people were really just playing uh, the more recent production. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, maybe because of showdown too, if you just throw like one punt play in there, you can get almost all the guys you want in. So I think that also enables people to to like play their bias of whatever whatever the recency bias of whatever happened. Like because you can get that guy in if you really want to. There's it's not that hard, you know. 
Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit bigger level because you mentioned the correlations. I think that's that's interesting as far as the construction part of it is concerned. So when you're thinking about constructing a, a, a one particular lineup, how much of it is I have a theme for how I think this game is going to go versus and – th- and then I'm going to build a lineup around that theme and around how the traditional correlations would be versus there is – I'm expecting this – like what is a possible unusual outcome that that can happen and let me build based upon that just to, sp- to specifically think about you know, that uniqueness. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough balance for sure. One – I think it's really important for people to wrap their heads around this being a completely different game than a main slate in terms of what you need in correlation and ceiling from players, because the main slate you're looking to get in a big tournament, you know, 90th percentile ceiling outcomes from multiple players in your lineup to be able to compete and win. You're talking a single game. Those might not exist. (laughs) You know, they they might not occur. And I think as a result, people sometimes are overthinking about the ceiling or what does the correlation look like? I can't play these two players together because this guy doesn't hit his ultimate ceiling uh, when this guy does well. Well, you probably don't need that player to hit their ultimate ceiling. It's one game. Sometimes it's 17 to 13 and no one's hitting their ceiling. So I, I think that's really important, especially if you get values that are strong, but maybe not correlated guys can hit their 30th percentile outcomes and be in the optimal lineup on a showdown slate. You know, that, that doesn't happen yeah. on a main slate. So I think for starters, it's really important to wrap your head around that. Cause if you don't, you start to get a little too picky with your lineups. Um, you do want to tell a story. You do want to think through the correlation, but you have to understand the incredible variance of a single game and, respect that to an extent, which you know, kind of can get you into non-traditional correlations. I'm still usually when I'm doing my single entry lineups, a bit more focused on the traditional correlations because it's hard to you sort of actively go against that. And generally you can find leverage more in the ownerships of the players that you don't need kind of this weird construction, so to speak. You know, if you're playing it, playing in a 200 to a thousand man field, even you can play, a more traditionally correlated lineup and just be really cognizant of your ownership percentages, maybe having a highly leveraged captain and a pretty normal lineup from there. Uh, whereas if you're playing in a really large field tournament, that's where, because you're so cognizant of not being duplicated, you might want to think through stuff that's not correlated, but like more likely to happen than people might assume. Yeah. I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, I guess in the in the Chiefs Raiders game, I think I had a decent amount of um, Le'Veon because he was so cheap with Ceh, who everyone hated <laughs> at the same time. Yes. Now that ended up being pretty lucky. That because I mean, but that's what the thing is. Like you have you have you're thinking about these outcomes that are very un, that are very unlikely. Unfortunately, I didn't. I kind of Tyreek wasn't in wasn't in some of those, so that then I. I uh, I didn't profit as much as I could have there, but but that type of thing is is something people aren't doing, right? Yeah, and that's you know those guys probably aren't as inversely correlated as you think because when the right. offense rolls, when they score five touchdowns like they do against the Raiders, all those guys they might be negatively correlated again at their 99th percentile ceiling, which is Ceh yeah. has a game where he touches the ball 90 percent of the time, and Le'Veon Bell doesn't touch it at all. But in their 60 to 80th percentile outcomes, it might be just the Chiefs offense rolls and both these guys are getting goal line opportunities, which is yeah, yeah. what happens. 
in that game. So that's a good example of one, one that, you know, I was really close to banking on a showdown earlier this year where I had, it was the, it was a Buccaneers Chicago bears slate. Mm-hmm. And when you get a guy like Allen Robinson, who has the potential to dominate targets so much, I really like those slates, those players that can get there with those 10, 110 and one lines, or maybe not even scoring a touchdown, they can get there because the bonus on DraftKings and the catches are worth so much. They can really trip up the correlation. So I almost had a pretty unique winner where I had an Allen Robinson captain and I had Brady stacks in the flex and I didn't have foals in my lineup. Now, generally you really want your quarterback with the receiver. if You have a receiver in the captain lineup, but these guys that have these alpha target shares sometimes can be the exception because they can really get there you know, without the quarterback even having that strong of a game, if they have 50% of the team's yards and they get the bonus and they catch the ball eight to 10 times. Yeah. I mean, it's just like an inefficient, it's just a signal of an inefficient offense, right? So it's an offense mm-hmm. that's not going to necessarily score touchdowns. Like if, you, if you're a receiver and you have um, 16 targets for 12 catches and 105 yards, like your your t- offense probably didn't do that well. That probably was not a good game for for your yeah. offense. But it's a good it's a it's an excellent fantasy game. So I could see that being so. Would that generally be the type of guy if you're not gonna if you're not gonna stack the quarterback and the receiver? Are you looking for these like Braxton Berrios types or something like that in in in, in that sort of role? Or was that or is it? Do those guys even have too low of a ceiling to think about because they might not get that hundred? I mean, he's probably cheap enough that, if, yeah. but like, if you're playing a jet slate, you're probably not too worried about <laughs> Or salaries. maybe like Jameson Crowder, maybe Jameson Crowder. I'm thinking about yeah, it. Like he's yeah, not playing without Jameson Crowder's Crowder. a good example. You know, if we look at the Detroit Houston slate for Thanksgiving, yeah. bring it back to that, a guy like Will Fuller, you're probably not going to do that with, right? You know, right. he's getting there on touchdowns. He's getting there on efficiency. Um, Seattle slates, you know, you generally want Russ with Metcalf or Lockett because they're getting there on efficiency most of the time. But let's say Amendola plays in this game. You know, he's still, I think he's might've returned to practice, but like, let's say Danny Amendola plays in this game. Yeah. Um, with Galladay out, this, this is a slot guy that, I mean, this goes back to, too, like the, the Super Bowl slate, right? When Julian Edelman won the MVP, uh, I actually had MVP bets on Edelman, which I was, I felt good about because I was told there's no way Brady doesn't win the MVP, but you get maybe these low scoring games, these inefficient games, as you said, and these slot guys that can just rack up catches. So, you know, Amendola might be an example of a guy you could play without Stafford. You probably wouldn't captain Amendola on this slate. So, but you could flex him without Stafford very easily and play like a Houston stack around that where, you know, Houston's efficient, they're successful on offense. And then Detroit, their guys get there because they're in a negative game script and they're inefficient, but guys are going to rack up catches in that type of game script. So Amendola is like a good example of that on this slate. And you know, that, does that apply to running backs, like third down backs? Yeah, absolutely. They, the I can see the same game script situation, right? Where a team's getting crushed and then they're just like trying to come back and just dumping it off all the time. So it's super rare, but sometimes to the five, one onslaught I've mentioned you can yeah. have a five one onslaught where the one is actually the captain. And <laughs> essentially what it is though, is the, you know, the team with five has spread out scoring. They dominate the game. Everyone does pretty well, but it's not concentrated in a single player. And then you get a back like a, a Kamara or a Saquon who 
can rack up these target shares and maybe run one in and the quarterback's not getting there. So you get the rushing touchdown equity, but you also get the, you know, six to eight catches for 50 yards type of thing. So uh, definitely the guys who can catch a ball, the backfield are important. Uh, I did want to bring up to the, I believe in that KC slate, you mentioned that yeah. none of the quarterbacks ended up in the optimal lineup. Yeah, I think I know Mahomes was not there, but I don't uh, I have to pull it up to see what I had for um, whether Carr was in there or not. But that's definitely Which possible. Is nuts, yeah. though, right? Like yeah. in a 35 31 game. But again, that comes down to a t- like these tightly priced slates, like Chiefs slates are generally tightly priced and, and Kelsey gets there. Tyreek gets there. So instead of having, you know, I mentioned having the cheap guy to allow that to happen instead of having the cheap guy to allow that to happen, it's more of a balanced lineup with all these skill players that get there without the quarterbacks. Now I generally would not advise that, but it, it, it is just something to point out that, you know, when the slates are priced tight, if there's priced tight and they're high scoring, you know, weird things can happen for sure. Okay. And a couple other things, these are more the outlier sort of things, whether you should even consider it or not. And of course it's going to come down to, you know, field size and, and all that sort of stuff. But so number one, and this is probably the more of the outlier outcome, um, backup quarterbacks. Is there any reason to think about putting those in? I think it was kind of a thing. Um, like I think there were some early wins with backup quarterbacks that it became a thing. Um, anyway, is, is, is that, is that ever a good use of, of lineups? I don't think so. I mean, maybe if you've got, let's say this Taysom Jameis game, this last game, you thought maybe yeah. there was a chance Taysom got benched. Yes. You know, there, there might be some specific scenarios like that, but if you're playing solely for injury, I think you're not getting the ROI over time on your investment. Even if somebody randomly binks one with that, it's, it's a poor, I, I don't see, you know, if that being viable. Any, Okay, so for for running backs, um, I mean, you have more outs, right, for a backup running back than you do well, a lot more for than a backup quarterback. Yes. But you know, you can get that, right? You can get like a mid game injury is probably more likely for a running back than it is for a quarterback. But but how about that? Is like trying to think about what the ceiling is for those guys. You're going to get some ceiling outcomes maybe for those guys that are not recognized, except for in a very unlikely scenario. Yeah, I think those guys are fine, especially if they're going to see the field anyways. Um, yeah. The other slate, I've been close, but but no victories this year. But the other slate I was close on was a, a Bengals slate early in the year where I played Drew Sample as the backup tight end. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I was hopeful that he could see some work, you know, even as the backup tight end. He was playing snaps, getting some targets at the bare minimum. You know, my outs to that type of lineup are one, it just the really expensive players hit and he's the cap relief that happens to get there with, you know, two catches for 15 yards, or maybe he just catches a touchdown, but then CJ Uzuma goes down in that game. And all of a sudden sample gets peppered with targets. And I ended up like one sample cut short of what I needed, but there, and, and the other thing with the backup pass catchers too, is there's more outs. You know, if you're a fourth wide receiver, a fifth wide receiver, if any of the wide receivers goes down in front of you, you know, you're probably stepping up into a bigger role. So you're not dependent on injury of just any single guy. So I, I definitely think playing the injury equity on some of these really cheap guys who are going to see the field a little bit anyways, makes sense. I think it's important. They're going to see the field anyways, because 
it expands your outs, but also if you get the injury, you really, you want to get paid off. So you want to be right on who the guy is that's coming in, you know? So yeah, I, I'm cognizant of that. Okay. Now I, I lied before. Cause I have one last thing. Um, when it comes to these kind of punt plays, is there any, is there any like thematic thing that you either have recognized in advance that you want out of these guys? Like you mentioned like a tight end where, you know, that's someone where the high proportion of their scoring is going to come from touchdowns probably. So you're more likely to maybe get that one touchdown to, to put you in something like that. Is there a thematic thing that you've either thought of that you think about in advance or that just anecdotally now that you think about who you play? Oh yeah. I kind of tend to go for this sort of backup versus that sort of backup. Um, or is it just game by slate by slate? It's mostly slate by slate. I'll say, you know, sometimes I think snap counts can be overrated in how we, Mm-hmm. value fantasy players but these cheap guys are the exception where i really you know i want them to be on the field and just have opportunities for a weird play i'm looking at this houston detroit slate you know jesse james is the bare minimum and his role's been getting back to kind of where it was at the beginning of the season and that that's a guy who can score a touchdown you know and if you you can get there on just a touchdown as a cheap player especially like the fuller watson stack or Fuller Watson cooks is really expensive to get that stack in. You know, you want to get that double stack in with one of those guys being your captain, right? You're going to need some serious cap relief. And you're so a guy like Jesse James, I'd be willing to play. Um, this Detroit Houston game is kind of ripe with guys too, but I like taking advantage of when there's uncertainty as well, where, you know, there's injuries like there are on the Detroit side of things and maybe the market, people making projections, they have a guess as to how that is going to how those targets are going to funnel down and trickle. But, you know, there's kind of two types of volatility. The one volatility is we're pretty confident in the volume expectations for a player. And then it's just going to kind of swing randomly from game if they're a little bit higher or low. The second kind of volatility is we're not even confident in the volume input we're we're putting on a guy. And and that's, those are really intriguing to me because I think the market overlooks those too much sometimes because that's your chance to get a guy where the market's completely wrong on. Uh, And you look at the lions distributions last week, you know, I played some Marvin hall on the main slate and his role did not grow how I expected. And Jamal Agnew played a bunch, right? And yeah, yeah. And you know, that that's like in the weeds, but like let's say that was a showdown slate. If you had played a guy like Agnew, who he didn't get there, but he had six targets, like that would have turned out to be a really good play. So you're taking some chances on the really volatile playing time situations where we really don't have a lot to lean on and we're just making our best guesses. You can get away from the market in those situations. And yeah, I think the Hall Hall Agnew is interesting because um like I think Hall still ran more routes, so like this would probably may might be an area, might be an ability to kind of just flip flip back the other, yeah. the other direction, the other direction this week and just play it that way. And when so we're talking about these punt guys. I'm going to I'm going to whether we have this game or not, this uh Ravens Steelers game. So what's what's your initial thought on or what would what would be your kind of your 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 theme thematic thought of like Gus Gus Edwards um is gonna be expensive. It's it's only gonna be him and Justice Hill. I mean they're gonna bring someone else in probably. And then Hill is like two hundred bucks. So like what about Hill? Because that's gonna be so obvious, right? It's gonna be such an obvious punt play. Is there any point did you just fade a punt play like that when it's smacking you right in the face? 
I think again, you know, I hate to get the field size caveats, but <laughs> yeah, you know, Hill's yeah. going to be a great play if you're playing smaller field where because people haven't seen the production, maybe he's not overowned and he's like just straight yeah. up really good value is the RB two, but he's definitely going to carry ownership because of projection systems and whatnot for the people that are making MME. But if you're, I mean, if you want to get, if you're playing, let's say the, the big showdown, you know, 300 K to first Thanksgiving slate, and you want to be unique. I'll try to maybe see something that nobody else has seen. The one that, I don't know, maybe this is crazy, but it sticks out to me a little bit is, you know, we had Nick Boyle go down for the season a couple of weeks ago and the Ravens really don't have a, a tight end too. Um, so Luke Wilson ended up playing some snaps yeah. last Luke, game. Double L, double L Wilson. <laughs> yeah. So didn't get any work, but there's part of me that says, they don't have a second tight end. Maybe he gets more work, you know, in his second week playing for the team. So, you know, that's a guy that if you're playing a really large field tournament and you really want to kind of get cute, you know, guys like that, where you can tell yourself a reason why their role might expand, but you also know that very few people are going to see that because I mean, he hasn't scored a fantasy point all season. <laughs> yeah. That I mean, I was kind of on the, um, uh, I, I always pronounce, I'm probably always pronouncing his name incorrectly, but Ricard or the, cause who was like a fullback yeah. who's kind of playing like a tight end, but yeah, it didn't, didn't work out so well. Um, all right. Anyway, this was, this has been great, Mike. I appreciate all the time. I think, like I mentioned before showdown, if anyone made it to this point, you're obviously interested. And I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of action on Thanksgiving and then every, uh, Island game. Um, I like to put out some content for that. So it's a, it's a good way of, being able to play without having to take uh, take down and, and analyze an entire slate. Um, so you're, the work that you're doing at uh, Establish the Run, um, everyone needs to check that out. You have you're, you're doing podcast work. You're doing written you're doing written content too, or is it mostly dealing with the projections? Uh, mostly dealing with the projections, and then a weekly GPP show that I do with Drew Dinkmeyer on Saturday mornings called Establish the Million, and then looking to do some more big picture written work in the off season, as far as seasonal strategy and DFS strategy. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I mean, I love your stuff. Love everything over there. Uh, follow Mike on Twitter at uh, two hats. One Mike will, we'll skip the backstory on that. And, <laughs> uh, and everyone is out there listening. I appreciate you guys listening, rate, review the pod, and I'll be talking with you more after Thanksgiving and have a, have a great holiday. Uh, distanced or uh, or not. I'll, I'll talk to everyone later. Bye.